Father, tonight, thank you for the time to teach, for my time to prepare, and for the opportunity to deliver it here tonight. Let it be done according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Open with me to chapter 18 of the book of Acts. We are uh, but ten chapters or so away from the end of this book and moving diligently uh, through the text. But tonight we're going to go through a good part of chapter 18. Paul's still in the second missionary journey, now moving to Corinth. And this will be the last major European city that he hits on his tour of Europe. And it is also to be his greatest success as a church planner, though initially it won't seem as so. Look at verse 1 through 5 with me in chapter 18. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. And they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So Corinth is a city about 50 miles west of Athens, which is where he just left to come now to this city. As you probably know, especially if you were one of those in the study we did on the book he wrote, the first letter he wrote to Corinthians, the city is on a very narrow strip of land that connects mainland Greece with the uh, Peloponnesus, which is the large hunk of land that is the southernmost part of Greece. Even though that hunk of land is roughly the same width as the mainland, it narrows down to a very thin strip to connect to the rest of the mainland. And Corinth is a city that lays right in that neck, that thin stretch of land. It has a very ancient past, probably dating all the way back to Japheth, one of the sons of Noah. The city of Paul's day traced its immediate history back almost a thousand years. So th this is one of the oldest places on earth in which you can find a civilization. In more recent history to Paul's day, the city had been destroyed by Roman soldiers in about 146 B.C. because they had rebelled against Roman authority. And they came in, destroyed the city, enslaved most of the inhabitants. But then Rome came back and rebuilt the city because it still had value to, the, to Rome to have a city in that location. They did that about 100 years later in 46 B.C. and they gave it its current name, Corinth. Within a couple of decades, just 20 or so years after they founded the city, it had already become the Roman capital of the region of Archaea and it had grown substantially in size. It went through a whole boom period. It's not hard to understand why when you look at its geography and a couple of details. It lay between two ports, one on the Aegean Sea and one on the Mediterranean Sea, and it was a common route of passage for goods. Ships would dock in one port, all their cargo would be offloaded, moved across land on a very elaborate train system, a rail system, if you will, that was built, where men had barges that rode on top of logs, and then men would push it on top of the logs, and they'd pull the backmost log out and run to the front and stick it in front again. And they moved it across the isthmus to the other side and loaded the other ship. This is actually better than trying to sail all the way around the Polyponesus and risking storms and other treachery. So it had ports on two sides. This was a, a sailor's town. And that tells you a lot about the town all by itself. By the time Paul arrives, it was almost 500,000 people. 
one of the biggest cities in the world in that day. It was the center of Aphrodite worship, the goddess of love, another reason why it was a sailor's favorite uh, port. Her temple, which is still there today in ruins and it's quite impressive, is on a hill that overlooks uh, the city, Necropolis, and that hill is about 1,800 feet above the city. Inside that temple, they would often have upwards of a thousand prostitutes on duty waiting to serve the worshipers, sailors, many of them. It was a city so renowned for its immorality because of all these influences, the trade, the the sailors, the people that would pass through this town from all over the world. Remember, in order to get from their ship to the other side and get on a new ship, they had to walk through the city. It was perfect made, tailor made for that city to get a lot of commerce out of that industry of sailing. And because of the Aphrodite worship there, it was the sin city of its day. It was considered the most depraved city in the ancient world, which is saying something. Greek and Roman writers of the day, in fact, coined a phrase that meant extreme depravity. And it was Corinthianize. To Corinthianize meant to live an extremely immoral life. Elsewhere, it was known simply as the Corinthian life, to live the Corinthian life. A prostitute was often called a Corinthian girl. That was the slang for prostitute. So that's the setting in which Paul now enters with the gospel. And by his own testimony in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he's fearful, he's intimidated by what he sees as he comes into this city. And you have to kind of see it from his point of view. He's in a city that is huge, immensely immoral and pagan, and he's one small Jew with the message of the gospel. He comes into the city alone, no one coming with him as he enters this city. He immediately, we're told in the text, immediately he finds support in the form of a Jewish couple named Aquila and Priscilla. The couple becomes prominent in the early church and they're mentioned in numerous letters in the New Testament and later in the book of Acts. You probably, though, are more familiar with them when you reverse the names, Priscilla and Aquila. And that's because, except for where Luke mentions them here, they're typically named in reverse order, which was unusual. The woman's name coming first would not have been typical for the day. It suggests she was the more important member of this marriage, and perhaps that's by position, either financially or through perhaps spiritual gifting. But it was common in the rest of the New Testament for her to be named first. Luke tells us they're originally from Pontus. Your maps may show this. Uh, If you were to look on the maps I've supplied to you in the past, Uh, It's not written on here, but if you look on Asia Minor, about where Troas is, and then go immediately to your right across the top of the map, you'll see where it says Bithynia and Pontus. That region at North Asia Minor, current-day northern Turkey, is the land that that this couple was originally from. That's significant because Jews from Pontus were reported to have been part of the events of Pentecost. If you go back and look in chapter 2, there were Jews there, visitors from Pontus. Perhaps Aquila and his wife were present at that moment and were converted at Pentecost or maybe converted by someone returning from Pentecost to Pontus. But it suggests how long they've been believers, that these are not new believers in the city of Corinth. These are two men and a woman who have been in the church almost from the beginning. We're also told they were expelled by Rome by Emperor Claudius. Now, there are Roman historians who wrote in the reign of Claudius about an event in A.D. 49 in which a riot broke out among Jews in the city of Rome. And the riot, as the Roman historians record it, was about something called Christos or Christ. And by that reference in Roman history, we gained the knowledge that there must have been some believing element of Jews in Rome 
who stirred up the same kind of trouble that Paul's been stirring up everywhere he goes. And the resulting riot caused so much disturbance that Claudius, not interested in sorting it out, just says, send all the Jews out of the city. Now, later he allows them back in. But at this point, Priscilla and Aquila have moved from Rome closer to home and stopped in Corinth. So you have these two believing Jews who are in Corinth and Paul happens to find them. There probably weren't two other believing Jews in the whole city. And Paul finds these two. They probably met, as the text suggests, because they had the same line of work. Tradesmen in that day had to belong to guilds, something like a union today, only it was more strictly enforced then. Uh, You could not work your trade without being part of the guild. And as you entered a new city, like in this case, Paul coming into Corinth or Aquila coming into Corinth, your first stop was at the local guild office where you then gained the ability, the, the permission to work in that city as part of the guild of tradesmen. And you would also find work assignments through that guild. Very well controlled, very well orchestrated. So Paul and Aquila have probably come to the same place on the same day looking for the same kind of work as part of the same guild and bumped into each other in that moment. Clearly, this relationship is a blessing to Paul, a great blessing to him. And the Lord, I would argue, has provided it here to encourage Paul in these early days in the city. His, God's hand is all over this encounter, all over this chance meeting. Because I think it's hard for us to appreciate how difficult it must have been for Paul to enter this city alone, given his mission, given the fact that he had no financial support, no friends in the city. He's bringing a difficult message, one proven to be hard to, to, to bring across, to a huge and famously sinful city. Naturally, he says, as he mentioned in 1 Corinthians, he's trembling, he's fearful. I don't think it's a stretch to say that the Apostle Paul lacked some confidence as he walked into this setting. But the Lord was kind, and he picked Paul up with a blessing of a Jewish couple who knew the Lord already, who were in the same trade, who were willing to fellowship with Paul and encourage him in those early days. You don't have to think long on this to realize that the Lord is doing this all the time. All the time. Men and women who step into the mission field are particularly prone to stories of how God makes an appearance when they least expect it, but yet when they most need it in some remarkable way. If you've talked to people who work in the mission field, you'll know what I'm talking about, the stories that they have. And have you ever found yourself hearing those stories and thinking to yourself, how come I don't see that? Why is it always the missionary who gets that sudden rescue? Why is that experience less common? in Western contemporary Christianity than perhaps for some of these missionaries. Well, God doesn't show up until we need him. We don't recognize him. He's doing work all around us, but we don't appreciate it or recognize it because until we're at the point of need where his arrival is so clearly a break from a pattern, we're not giving him proper credit. And in these moments when missionaries, or in this case, Paul, find themselves in desperate circumstances, that's when God's arrival is most obvious. And he times it so that you will get the point. Missionaries are used to this. Strangers appearing out of nowhere just at the right time to lend a hand in the way you need it. Government bureaucracy suddenly fading away and rules being forgotten and what normally takes two months takes a day. He'll suddenly need a visa for somewhere he has to go by three days from now. And the visa process takes two days just to go back and forth in the mail overnight and he'll get it on time. Things like that that no one has ever seen before. You know, those are the ways God shows up. Don't ever let the enemy convince you that you're alone in the work that he assigns you in the field. 
Henry Blackaby, in his famous study, Experiencing God, says that God's always at work around you. The goal is to find where God's at work and join him. So these two believing Jews have come into Corinth and have met Paul, and they become God's strengthening for Paul in this moment. He's given a couple who share his faith, his Jewish culture, even his trade, so that Paul was immediately comforted and knew God was with him every step of the way, strengthening him. Now, as Paul is prone to do, we've seen before, he starts with the synagogue. So as he gets started in the city, he goes to the synagogue. He is again with the traditional method, reasoning every week, trying to convince both Jew and Greek, and the Greek here refers to Greek proselytes, who are in the synagogue studying with the Jews. He tries to convince them that Christ is Lord from the the Scriptures. But it's also clear now that from the text, Paul's not getting very far in this. In fact, it seems that he doesn't receive even a single convert here for some time. We'll look at the text here more closely on that, rego- on that issue here in a moment. But understand, this is not an immediately successful effort on Paul's part. Notice it says there that he's there for quite some time, reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath. Well, that means weeks are going by here as he's trying to reach people in the Sabbath. Remember this moment in Paul's life. The next time you find yourself working for the Lord and getting nowhere. Even the Apostle Paul went through periods, as he will see, will see here, dry periods in which he got no converts. The only believers he knew are ones he found who were already believers at this point. When Timothy and, Tyler, uh, Timothy and Silas arrived, look what Paul does. In the last verse I read, it gave Paul an opportunity to double down his efforts. First, the men here bring reports of good news from the church in Thessalonica. Now, that's not written here, but we hear Paul mention that in his first letter back to the city of how these men brought good reports when they returned. Secondly, we know that from another letter that they brought donations from the church in Philippi. So they come with good reports and money. Two things Paul needed. As Luke says, this allows Paul to devote himself completely to the word. The phrase in Greek is suneko. It means to be seized by, taken over by. Paul becomes completely taken over, completely focused on God's word once he has these men arrive. What Luke's implying, of course, is Paul has stopped working. He's stopped doing the tent making. He's put all his effort now into preaching, into preparing and studying and getting ready to teach the Bible. Every waking hour now is focused on God's word, made possible by the fact that he had financial support and the support of those men who now came with him and may have taken over some of the work on his behalf, for all we know. Don't overlook here this obvious biblically founded principle here, and that is that ministry is a profession largely dependent on the financial gifts of those who receive the benefits of that ministry. It is a unique profession in that regard in that it is a dependent profession. It expects that it would receive back its worth from those who benefit from it. Ministers are not to be without the ability to support themselves. I believe from Scripture there is a mandate that we would not be burdensome, which is to say so dependent that we can't make up for differences or for gaps in that that supply when we are unable to provide for ourselves. I think that's a bad situation to be in. Even the Jewish rabbis taught this need, the need to be self-sufficient. One quote from Barclay is, Paul was a rabbi, but according, according to Jewish practice, every rabbi must have a trade. He must take no money for preaching and teaching and must make his living by his own work and his own efforts because the Jews glorified work. Love work, they said. He who does not teach his son a trade teaches him robbery. So Paul was trained in that tradition 
that you had to be able to work if necessary. And Paul does when he feels it's appropriate. But Paul was, though he was never dependent on support, in the sense that he, he needed the money or he wouldn't have been able to minister without support, he could minister without support. He could get a tent-making job and then feed himself so that ministry never stopped. But nevertheless, he knew that self-sufficiency was not a goal in itself. Self-sufficiency would merely be a means to an end, but it was not the ideal state. As long as he was working to feed himself, he was taking time away from studying and teaching and preaching. And in this case, Paul knew that his ability to be effective for the sake of the gospel was compromised by the amount of time it was taking him to work. So in the case of Silas and Timothy and, and, the, and arriving with those donations, he took advantage of the opportunity to go back to full-time preaching. And in that way, he allowed each church who benefited from his earlier teaching to participate in the work of planning the next church. It just moved down the line. Paul commands this principle and repeats actually an Old Testament principle in 1 Timothy 5.17. He says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul points here to a classic picture from farming, and I'm not going to belabor this point. I don't want it to seem self-serving in the least. I think it's just biblically appropriate to cover it since it's in the text. But Paul here points to a classic picture in 1 Timothy of how farming is a great analogy to our support of men in ministry, or women for that matter. A farmer, in this case, depends on the hard work of his ox. If his ox is not working the field well, the farmer himself loses out. The ox performs well, uh, if he does, and ensures the farmer has the ability to plow that field. And the effect of a good working ox in the field is a farmer who gains a good harvest from that field and feeds himself from that good working ox. It's a simple relationship, profound though, because if the farmer were ever to restrict the ox's ability to feed himself out of that feed bag, that's what muzzling refers to. If you, if you muzzle the ox, you keep him from eating. Well, an ox that's hungry isn't going to pull very hard, isn't, isn't going to work as hard, is going to be weak. He, if the farmer was so foolish as to save a little bit of feed in the bag, he's making his only work animal so weak that he loses out far more in the produce of that field in the long run. He's undermining his own situation. His own prosperity suffers because he has chosen to be cheap with a little bit of feed for his, his ox. Paul's application is obvious. We, we don't make it harder for our elders and our pastors and our teachers to support us with what truly matters, the Word of God, by restricting from their needs the little bit we might have to offer. Supporting them ensures they aren't distracted from that work. It gives them an opportunity to focus entirely on what matters most to us. It's a simple relationship, often forgotten. Paul has devoted himself entirely now, fully, to the Word, because he knows that's what matters in the moment. And he's done so because someone in, in this case, Philippi, was able to support his work. Our ministry works on that basis. This church works on that basis. Everything works on that basis. And that is a different message, I might add, than what is commonly preached today, which is that you will benefit financially from that giving. Paul makes no such connection. His connection is a spiritual benefit, which is, which is immeasurably greater than the small financial investment somebody makes in the life of someone who serves them in ministry. So we make a temporal donation to gain a eternal reward because of what the Word of God can do in our life and in the way we see eternity. So 
That's the premise you see operating here as Paul says, hey, good thing the guys are here putting down my tent making tools. Let me get on to the good stuff. You guys pick up my tent making tools or, or collect more donations for me. There's a larger issue or another issue that interests me even more than that, though, in what Paul's doing here. And I'm going to read a little into the text. I'm putting that warning up front here because I may be wrong and you need to take a look at it for yourselves. But the question that came to my mind is, why is Paul doing this? In other words, why is he studying so much at this moment? We know, first of all, that in this period of time, he teaches other churches. In fact, he writes both First and Second Thessalonians while he's in this period in Corinth. He writes both of them, in fact, within only a few weeks of each other. Later, we know he writes Romans while he's in this period. Think about the effort that went into crafting that letter with all that it contained. And uh, it's likely he may have done that on the suggestion of Priscilla and Aquila, who were from that church in Rome. So Paul probably used some of this time in preparation for those works. Secondly, he may have been doing some homework here to address the doubts and the objections of the Jews that he encountered in the synagogue in Corinth. So he's been arguing with them week after week after week, getting nowhere. Now he's finally able to give full time and attention to study and he may roll up the sleeves and be thinking, "Okay, I'm going to get my best argument possible now out of Scripture. I'm going to have every answer to every question and every objection. Finally, he might have just been studying for his own sake, just to strengthen his resolve and his confidence, give himself a peace about what he's doing and God's direction in the study. I mean, we go to the word of God to know what God wants for us, too. And as well, maybe to inoculate him. You know, he's been in the city now for a while. The daily exposure to sin and debauchery and temptation. There's nothing like going to God's word and resetting, going back to the grounding of what God's word says when you're in the face of a bunch of noise, the, what the world throws at you. And then, of course, the discouragement on top of that of having no converts after all this time, just being in the word for a while. And I find this to be an interesting observation in my own experience. If, if you find someone when you suggest this alternative to them and they look at you like spending time in God's word is, is not something that strikes them as a comfort in the midst of their circumstances, then they don't know what they're missing. That's someone who's showing you an immaturity in their faith because they don't understand what God's word does in the life of a believer when they devote themselves to it. They, they see it as a source of information, much like any other book, rather than as a, a deepening of the relationship. So Paul may be in the word for all of these reasons. But I think there's something more going on. And that's why I'll lead, lead into that now as we move forward in the text. Verse 6. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Let's start by just noticing that despite his best efforts here, Paul has gone nowhere in this synagogue. Their hearts are hardened. And it's evident in their response. To my reading of Acts, this is the first time Paul has had not a single convert in his synagogue preaching. He's never converted many, but he's always had a few. 
But it would appear here, and I'm speaking now before the moment of Crispus. I'm talking about at the moment in verse 6 where Paul throws his hands up and says, I give up. This is a frustrated Paul. This is not something we've seen from Paul yet. Yes, he's always left the Jew eventually and gone to the Greek. But it was after he won some converts. And then in the winning of some, he felt he had done his duty with respect to the Jews. And then he did the next step and moved to the Gentiles. Why has he been in this synagogue week after week after week for so long? Because he's yet to get his first convert. Because I'm sure in his mind, his duty to the Jew had not been fulfilled until he had reached someone in the Jewish community. And having not done so, he's frustrated and he's grinding at this week after week, devoting himself all the more to to learning studying all the harder, and yet still with nothing to show for it. Eventually, we're told, they blaspheme the Lord. In fact, when it says they resisted and blasphemed, the word resisted in Greek is actually stronger. It means battled against. There's a little war going on in this synagogue. And then finally, when they blaspheme, Paul's had enough. He shakes his garments. That's similar to shaking the dust off your feet. It's a sign of dismissing them, of having nothing more to do with them. He's frustrated, and then he makes a vow. He says, from now on, I only go to the Gentiles. And he walks next door to the house of this man, Justice. This entire experience must have been unsettling for Paul. I'm trying to avoid reading too much into the text, but I think it's not unfair to say, given how he has proceeded in his ministry up until now, this is a low point for him. This is something he has yet to wrestle with. He's been beaten. He's been uh, put on trial. He's been put in prison. But in the midst of all of those moments, he was making converts, even members of the prison themselves if necessary. But here he goes into the largest city he's yet preached in and he hasn't made a single convert after weeks. We can all appreciate that in some way from our own experiences, whether it's in preaching or whether it's in some other work of ministry, we've all had those moments in which nothing is working or seems to be nothing is working. And the frustration builds to the point where we seem to doubt now whether we have the right mission or whether we're doing something wrong or whether there's some other problem. The text doesn't say here But my assumption is that when he goes to this home next door with this man, Justice, this man, Justice, his name is a Greek name, so he was a Gentile, he was not a Jew. And then you hear of Crispus immediately afterward. Here's the way I imagine this scene. I imagine him walking next door because he knows Justice is a Christian. He may have been a Greek man who already knew the Lord, or he may have come to know the Lord as a result of Paul or someone else in the city. But Paul's frustrated over not reaching any Jews. He walks next door in protest against the synagogue. The synagogue would have known that the next door neighbor was was a Greek believing man. And it's almost, I think, Paul's point or attempt to make a point to the synagogue that he's keeping his vow. You didn't want me? Fine, I'm going next door to that Gentile. Then I believe what happens is Crispus follows him, walks into the building with him and is converted in that moment. In fact, Paul later writes in the letter back to the Corinthian church about how he was pleased that he didn't baptize too many people because of how it would have negatively influenced their view of him. But he does say, I baptized two people. And the two people he mentions are these two men. Gaius, which is another name for justice, and then Crispus. So Paul was probably the source of both of those men's faith. Crispus being the first Jew. Now here's more proof of how God works. We will exhaust ourselves... And I know this from personal experience. We will exhaust ourselves working for him. But when we finally stop and give it over to God, then the real work begins. I think, and I may be wrong, but I think Paul was studying and working to convert that first Jew 
And he may have at some point crossed the line in which his work was more in his own power than in something God was at work doing. This isn't to to diminish Paul or to suggest he doesn't understand how things work. It's nothing more than simply the recognition of how our our natural human emotions work and how in the midst of something this difficult, we get wrapped up in it. And Paul would have done the same, I would imagine, at least sometimes. If he's done that here, then perhaps when he finally says, I'm done trying and he walks next door, what does God do? He has a Jew follow him into the next building just to make the point. You're done working, Paul? Finally. Okay, Crispus, head over there. I don't want to appear to second-guess him, of course, but the timing of this conversion just seems awful suspect to me. I see God making clear here that the conversion of Corinth, whether Jew or Greek, was in his providence, not in Paul's skill, not in Paul's merit, not in his achievements, not in his brilliant intellect or oratory. And Paul, I think, got the message because what does he make as his first point in the first letter he wrote back to the Corinthian church? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he emphasizes that he preached the gospel, but it was not in the power of his speech that he made any converts. It was in the weakness of Paul that God was seen to be strong. I'm particularly struck by two things in this regard. First, God appears to Paul in a vision and encourages Paul to continue preaching and that no one will harm him. Why did God do that? There's no record of him doing anything like that for Paul at any other point. He must have been pretty down. Paul must have been at a very low point. And God came in this vision to encourage Paul in a direct way, suggesting to me anyway that Paul may have been striving in his own power, had been feeling a failure because he wasn't more capable or or being threatened by it. And God comes in and says, you don't have anything to worry about. This is my job, not yours. And then God adds, I have many people in this city. When he spoke those words, there were virtually no Christians in Corinth. You could probably count the number of Christians on two hands, maybe two dozen at most in in Corinth at this point. So when God says to Paul, you have nothing to worry about. I've got many people in this city. He's clearly speaking about the future tense. He's clearly naming the believers before they themselves even know they are going to be believers. Which is an encouragement to the man who has been assigned to go get them. If you've heard me speak in the past about the Easter egg hunt Example of how it is we participate with God in the process of bringing believers into this world. This is a perfect example of the Easter egg hunt analogy. And that analogy briefly is that just like our parents put eggs in the field so we can go find them. And we went out eagerly looking because we knew they were there. And our intent was to get there first. So we went fast to avoid someone else getting there before us. That's virtually the same way God has worked in putting us in the world as ambassadors of Christ to find the next believer. We don't make them no more than we made the eggs appear. And there's a finite number because God is in the business of assigning who it is who will receive the the grace that God offers. And he is at work constantly in the world around us, bringing those those new believers into existence by the grace of God through the spirit and the work of of the gospel. We're simply there to, to catch them, so to speak, but we won't catch them if we don't look. And the one who works the hardest at the looking will be the one who catches the most. And this is the example. It says, i got many of them out there. That's the equivalent to the parent saying to the child, the Easter eggs are all over the place out there. If you just go look, you'll find them. That kind of a message encourages a five-year-old. And for that matter, it encourages a 15-year-old. And it also encourages a man who's called to find the next believer. So when God says he has many, he's encouraging Paul to find them. And God has stepped in here dramatically at the moment of Crispus's 
salvation, I would argue, to reassure a struggling Paul and imply that he will bring the fruit when he wants to bring the fruit. And uh, Paul can't let the lack of results here discourage him. That's the human nature of how we serve God. Our human nature is to assume that it depends on us and so we work hard. When it fails, we blame ourselves or in some other way we uh, decide we aren't up to the task. Neither end of that is true. It doesn't depend on us and success isn't to our glory. Failure isn't to our uh, critique. The only thing that is to our glory or to our critique is effort, devotion, dedication, obedience. When Paul writes about this, as I mentioned in 1 Corinthians, look what he says. Listen to what he says now in light of this moment in his life, thinking about how this moment was in the middle of his conversation. Chapter 1, verse 26 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says to that church, he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it was written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul all but discredits himself. And I, my view, when I read those words and when I look at the text of Acts, I come to a complete view in my mind anyway that Paul had a moment of recognition for his own sake, that he was striving a little too hard in the pharisaical sense of that rather than the apostolic sense of that. And when it finally came clear to him that he was not going to save this people on his own, God began to do the saving. Now, forgive me if I've gone beyond what you feel is fair for Paul's sake, but there's certainly an application for us in that, if not Paul. And then it says, for the next 18 months... Paul settled in to work and live and teach in that city. Verse 12. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrong or vicious crime, O oh Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. <laughs> but if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. They all took hold of Sothenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Galio was not concerned about any of these things. The pro-council of Achaia was Gallio. He had a famous family, for what it's worth. His father was the famous Stoic who tutored Nero, the emperor. His brother was Seneca, who you probably recognize the name. His nephew was also a famous Greek poet. He was, uh, Gallio was renowned. There's several historical works of the day in Rome that regarded him as exceptionally pleasant. The kind of guy everyone loved. The, the man who had no enemies. 
pleasant, likable person. This is the man we're looking at here. Nero eventually executed him and his brother in one of Nero's fits of madness. Now, in this moment, as they had done in the past, the Jews have dragged Paul before the Romans looking to have Rome bring their law down on Paul's head. This is the tactic we've seen over and over again. So they drag him here to the judgment seat, or in Greek, the bima seat. This is a place where authorities pass judgment. You can think of it like the modern-day courthouse. God had already promised Paul in that vision that he would not see harm come to him while he's in the city. And now we see that truth play out. Uh, when Paul appears here before the proconsul, the Jews charge Paul with violating Roman law. Now, the law he's charged here with violating is a law in, Ro- in the Roman Empire that forbid teaching or proselytizing anybody to believe something other than officially endorsed religion. And the only religion that was officially allowed outside of Roman pagan religion and emperor worship was Judaism. That was the only religion that in the empire that had gained any exclusion or any exception to the rule. And the history on that is pretty easy to remember. It's the fact that if they hadn't done that, they would have had a riot on their hands from every Jew at all times. They never would have had peace in the empire. And so just to make peace with the Jews, they they gave them that exception. So you could practice Judaism without complaint under law. And you could obviously practice pagan worship, Greek pagan worship or Roman pagan worship without any complaint. But Christianity, were it to be deemed a new religion, would have immediately been a violation of Roman law. That's essentially the charge here. These people are proclaiming something new. They're not allowed to do that. Charge them, please. Now, when Gallio hears the charge, he immediately dismisses the complaint. And here's what he says. He says, I would have been willing to consider a charge here if you had brought some matter that involved vicious crime or a matter of wrong, which implies something against Roman law. But you haven't. Now, what that says to us is that he does not accept that this charge of Paul preaching a new religion was truthful. Well, the only conclusion you draw from that is he is looking here at Paul's preaching to be an extension of Judaism, to be another sect or offshoot of Judaism. In other words, under the umbrella of Judaism, therefore not a new religion and therefore not a matter of Roman law. It's a dispute within the Jewish realm. Remember, this is after the riots of Rome. He would no doubt have heard about those. And so he says, get out of here. I'm not in the business of deciding between disputes within your little religion. And so he dismisses the complaint. Now, his decision here is significant historically for two reasons. First, it immediately established official Roman position that Christianity is a part of Judaism and therefore was legal. Paul would not violate Roman law now, according to this proconsul decision. This removed, at least for the time being, the threat of Roman persecution or prosecution for preaching the gospel. Paul was now free to preach the gospel within this Roman province, to be sure, for this is the proconsul, at least for a time being, and probably anywhere he goes in Rome, because the second effect of this decision is that a proconsul's ruling had the force of law in general across the Roman Empire. It was sort of like a precedent today in the courts of law that we have. Once he made this kind of a decision, it was not likely another proconsul would have overridden it. So truly, you see God at work here in allowing now some period of time historically for the church to spread within the Roman Empire free from the concern that they were violating Roman law. This would no longer be a charge that would hold or would stick in the Roman Empire. Now, the Jews didn't give up. The charges stopped being 
preaching a new religion, they became disturbing the peace or preaching against Caesar or taxes or something else. They looked for anything they could. But this charge was no longer valid. This is God doing what he says he does in Romans 8.28, turning all things to good. What was at one moment a threatening situation for Paul became an opportunity now for the gospel to grow. And we know historically it took until Nero's rise in the later part of this uh, century, of the first century, for there to be serious uh, persecution against the Jews. This gave a window of opportunity, about 10 or 20 years, for Paul to preach. At the end of the proceedings, we're told he forcefully ejects them. The word here in Greek is very strong. It means literally they ran them out almost under force. And that precipitates an anti-Semitic outburst of some kind in which the Gentiles who were watching and and listening to the proceedings decide they're going to take up and start beating the, the synagogue leader as a result. Imagine them standing in this Bema seat and all of a sudden, he, the proconsul says, get these guys out of here. Push them out. Beat them. Get them out. And so a crowd starts to take up that charge to push them out violently. And that just erupts into a riot outside the door. And they, they go to beating him next as he gets outside the door. Kind of punishment for coming and bothering the proconsul. Somehow Paul's not involved in that. He sneaks out. Next time we see Paul, he's headed back to Antioch to complete his second missionary journey. Interestingly, and I find this not the least bit ironic, the proconsul watches as a riot basically breaks out and they start beating a man innocently or an innocent man starts getting beaten. And yet he was the one who just said a few minutes ago, well, if you had brought a charge of a violent or vicious crime, I would have done something about it. But and yet he witnesses a vicious crime and does nothing about it. <laughs> Clearly, he speaks out of both sides of his mouth. When I look at the rest of this chapter, it actually begins something very important that goes into the first half of chapter 19. And I can't separate the end of 18 from the beginning of 19. I don't want to even try. So rather than go too far tonight and not be able to do what I need to in terms of chapter 19, I'm going to pause there. If you look down the text of chapter 18 just a little bit, and we pick up right at uh, verse 18. Paul's now going to leave the city. And he's going to start his trip back to Antioch. This is the furthest point from home on his second missionary journey. He now starts heading back toward where he left. And along the way, he's going to run to a man that we know well from Scripture, a man named Apollos. And Apollos is a man who's going to be preaching the gospel, but yet has not run into Paul and is lacking, at least in some regard, an essential element of the message of the faith. And in the way he is spreading what he knows He has left this deficit everywhere he goes. Paul comes behind now and addresses it. But in the course of this story, it has given rise to confusion in the church today concerning something that you'll see some churches anyway preach, and that is this concept of a filling or secondary experience of the Holy Spirit. If you've ever heard that preached or taught that after you become a believer, you should now seek for and expect some secondary experience with the Holy Spirit, one that they'll refer to as the filling of the Holy Spirit, they go to various places in Scripture to support that view, that erroneous view. But one of the most, if not perhaps the chief place they go, is here, the end of 18, the beginning of 19, because of what we see happening between Paulus and Paul. We want to look at that issue next week as we look at what goes on in the text. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for the reminders that we serve you in your power, not in our own. And that it is an encouragement to know that. The world father is encouraged when they're told that they have the power and that they are successful because of their own strengths. And they take that as encouragement. 
But the folly of that is, Father, that our own power can only go so far. And in the matter of faith, it goes nowhere at all. But there's so much greater encouragement and possibility when we understand it is you who is doing all the work and our burden is light. And then, Father, knowing that we can have great encouragement for your power never ceases and you have no limits. And you can make everything work to your will. And so, Father, if we know we're working in your power, we have never a reason to stop or be discouraged. And we thank you for that reminder that if a man like Paul, with all that he could do and all that he was given, could reach a moment where perhaps he had doubts or discouragement over his efforts, we certainly can share in that too. But like Paul, Father, we can learn the lesson that you are the one at work, and when we yield, we will see that work be accomplished. Thank you that we have that reminder and that we can see it in the life of Paul. And we ask, Father, that uh, you'd give us a chance this week to put it to work. And bring us back, as always, next week, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.